Welcome to another iGrow season at APC. We're so glad you've tuned in. Our church is blessed with excellent teachers of the Word of God, and our hope is that you find today's teaching enlightening, motivational, and encouraging. To learn more about our church, visit theapc.org or find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's lesson. Tonight, we are actually going to kind of pick up where, I won't, I won't say where we left off, but we're going to kind of piggyback off of what we have spent the last two weeks um, talking about. Uh, but tonight, we're going to do it from kind of a different perspective or a different lens. So the last two weeks, we went through... Uh, and dove deep into some of the miracles that took place while Jesus was on earth. And tonight, we're not necessarily going to focus on how awesome Jesus was or how cool some of the things that were taking place while he was here were. But instead, we're going to actually look at how, with everything he was doing and with everything that was taking place, how were people, but not just people, how were the religious leaders at that time able to not recognize him as their Messiah? Or how did they miss the true uh, power that he possessed and what he really represented? So tonight we are going to talk about how or why the Jewish leaders missed Jesus. Now, when we talk about that word Messiah, in, in their eyes, in, in these religious leaders' minds, that, that word Messiah also uh, represented someone who was the anointed one. And, and when you look at it, there, there are three groups of people, or three titles, roles, whatever you want to label it, that were anointed in this manner. So first we can find in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3, where it says, If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. So there's our first one, if the anointed priest. So our first of those roles, groups, titles, whatever you want to label it, is our priests or high priests. And then the next two actually come from the same scripture in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, verse 16. Then anoint Jehu, son, or grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. So there's our second one, kings. And then the scripture continues, and anoint Elisha to replace you as my prophet. So there's our three. We have our priests, our kings, and our prophets. Therefore, leading to this kind of idea or picture or image in these leaders' mind that their Messiah would hold one of these titles. It would either be a king, a prophet, or a high priest. But that image or that idea was not just limited to these three titles. Because there are expectations that are laid out all throughout the Old Testament that these religious leaders were using to help support and help set that image of what this 
Messiah would be or who this Messiah would be. So we're going to start off going through what some of these expectations were and could have been. And we're going to talk about the scripture that supports this expectation or this image, if, if you want to use that instead. So the first one is this. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. This was an expectation that these religious leaders had. But it wasn't just something that they made up. It was something that the scripture they were using called out. Because if you look in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, it literally tells us. But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the, in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. So Bethlehem is specifically called out in this passage that there would be a righteous leader that comes from Bethlehem. And then the second one, which kind of ties in with the first one a little bit. So one of these scriptures actually ties both of them together. But that this second idea or expectation is that the Messiah would descend from the line of David. And this is laid out twice in Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah uh, chapter 23, verse 5, it says, for the, Lord, or for the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. And then again in Jeremiah, but in chapter 33, verse 15, it says, In those days and at that time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. So two different passages here in the Old Testament that sets in stone that this Savior or this Messiah will come from David's lineage. And we can, we can support this or we can understand that this was an expectation that these people had. Because in the New Testament, they even call it out themselves that this is the idea or the image of what their Messiah should be. When you look at John chapter 7, when the crowds heard him saying this, some of them declared, Surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. So now we've, we've got two of these groups in there, right? So the two, uh, two scriptures I just went through covered that king uh, category that we talked about at first. And now this one covers that prophet category. And 41 continues and it says, others said he is the Messiah. So now we have some people that are calling out. This, this is the guy that we're supposed to be waiting for. This is who is coming or who is sent for us. But yet there were others that said, he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? And then 42 is where they, they, they call out those two, um, the first two expectations. Because verse 42 says, for scripture clearly states that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem. So, so now not only do we have the Old Testament scripture setting the expectation, we also have an example of the people in the New Testament living this expectation. And, and they support the fact that they did have those expectations that the Savior or the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem and would be a part of David's lineage. Um, Oh, and so then we can also look at when we think about uh, 
Jesus's parents, right? You have Joseph and Mary. If you go to uh, the first 17 scriptures in Matthew, I decided to spare all of us and not go through. This is all the they begat them and begat here and begat there for, for 16 verses before finally in verse 16, we get to Jacob begat Joseph, husband of Mary. So there it's going down the whole lineage of, of David and, and we get all the begats and the fun chapter to read through. But in verse 16, it, it again solidifies that fact that Jesus or the Messiah will come from David's lineage. And so now our third expectation is that the Messiah would unite all nations and gather everyone who was exiled from Israel. And we can pull this from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, where it says, He will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will bring back together everybody that was removed or kicked out of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. And then in Isaiah 43, verses 5 through 7, it's where we get to see there's no limitation. This is where the all nations comes into play. There's, there's no limit as to who he's going to call because verse 5 starts out, Don't, Do not be afraid for I am with you. I will gather you and your children from east and west. There's no really cut off line there. It's just keep walking east. I will gather everybody there. Keep walking west. I will gather everybody there. Six continues, I will say to the north and the south, bring my sons and daughters back to Israel from the distant corners of the earth. And here's really the only limitation, if you want to put that there, in verse 7, where he says, bring all who claim me as their God. And that's it. That's the only limitation he puts as far as all nations or, or who is who he is planning on bringing back and who he's not. There's no limitation on distance as far as where it will go or where he will travel. It's just simply everyone who claims me as their God, no matter how far you are, where you're located, I will bring you back together. Then the fourth expectation is that the Messiah would be followed by men of all nations. So we've talked about the the last one. The third one is that he will gather all of the nations, but then the next expectation is that he will actually be followed by men of all the nations, which is laid out in Zechariah 8.23. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. In those days, 10 men from different nations and languages of the world will clutch at the sleeve of one Jew, and they will say, please let us walk with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So it, it specifically is telling them there, there is one leader, one Jew, one person that will have these followers that come from all different nations and all different cultures and all different languages, and they will follow and converge and follow this one person. Our fifth expectation is that the Messiah would bring peace and end war. Isaiah lays this out uh, in two different chapters. So the first one's Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, 
The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight nation. But he doesn't even stop there. He doesn't even say that nation is not going to fight nation anymore. He takes it one step further and he says, there won't even be a need for them to train for war. There's no need to even have to train to defend themselves or defend their family or their kingdoms. He's going to bring ultimate all peace and and end any bit of war or hostility. And and it's supported when you look at Isaiah chapter 11, where he says in verse 6 that in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. So we see typically when when we think of that's a predator prey situation, right? A wolf typically will feast on a lamb. But in this, he's saying they will be able to live together harmoniously. The leopard will lie down with a baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with a lion and a little child will lead them all. So again, in these two uh, passages, we're we're just talking about how there's going to be peace across all nations and across everybody. There's not even a need to prepare to defend yourself. And so that was the fifth expectation of what their Messiah would be able to bring. And then uh, the sixth and last one, yeah, sixth and last one is that the Messiah would end death. Isaiah 25 verse 8 says, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and his people. The Lord has spoken. So he's saying, he's prophesying here that this Messiah is going to swallow up death or that idea that people will be dying. And, And Paul later Um, actually quotes this verse when he's writing about eternal life. And and so he literally comes back to this prophecy that was written before, and and he quotes this when writing about eternal life. But that is not the only time where we hear that uh, death will kind of end or, or the idea behind death will end, because in Isaiah 26, Uh, Verse 19 says, but those who die in the Lord will live. Their bodies will rise again. Those who sleep in the earth will rise up and sing for joy. For your life giving light will fall like dew on your people in the place of the dead. So it's symbolizing that when we die, really, that's just our flesh. That's just the outside body that is dying. But the soul will continue to live when you when you live with Jesus or, or die in the Lord, as they're saying. And, and then it says that we will actually wake, awake and sing. So we will go to be with him rejoicing, therefore kind of ending this idea that there's death. And, and when you die, that's where anything that has to do with you stops, because this scripture clearly shows that there is more past our flesh dying off. Now, all of this is laid out throughout the Old Testament. So what that means is these are literally the scriptures that in this time they were going based off of. So when when they were studying their Old Testament law, when they were giving religious leadership on how to live, this is what they were turning to. 
So when we can see these expectations and, and, and clearly see scripture where they're laid out for them to understand and for them to follow, why would there be an opportunity for these people to struggle to realize who that Messiah is or even to struggle to recognize the Messiah when he's right in front of them in many cases? And I think it has to do, I think it stems from the way that they were being led. Because you can only understand as much as you're led or taught to understand. And you will never go past the people that are above you. And so then that raises the next question of the same situation. If if all of this is laid out for them, why would our religious leaders, who you would think would be the most studied up, who you would think would have the quote-unquote best understanding, why would they not, or why could they not recognize Jesus as the Messiah when he was literally carrying out these expectations in front of them? And that is where we're going to talk about the leadership in this time a little bit more and dive into some of the corruption behind their leadership and maybe pinpoint why, even with all of this laid out, were they not able to see who Jesus truly was while he was there with them. All righty. What an opening. The Old Testament tells us what Jesus is supposed to be. But the Jewish leaders looked at it this way. So we come to the New Testament and we kind of wonder why that they didn't accept him. But we also have to look at ourselves sometimes because why don't we accept him? And I think it's almost not always the same reasons. It's not that they did not believe. It's just they didn't want to believe because they pictured this guy on the throne, big old. That's how they pictured kings back then. That's how they pictured uh, the Messiah. Because they didn't need any more evidence. I mean, we went through two weeks and we only touched the surface of the uh, miracles that were done. And it doesn't even, what the Bible tells us doesn't even touch what we talked about because it says when there was 4,000, he healed and he did this and did that. So it doesn't even give us the number that was going on. So they had the evidence um, to support, but they still just, it's like they didn't want to believe, hey, this guy from Nazareth, which back then was not the best place to come from, this is not the guy we really think it should be. And if you have something to say, go ahead. <laughs> You, Paul. Um, we also see that they there were corrupt leaders. I mean, let's think about it. Back in the day, just like today, we have corrupt leaders. doesn't matter what party you're from. They were corrupt. It was all about money. If you had money, you were in charge. And so these leaders told the people what to believe. And it, I hate to characterize this, but if you go to a group of Poor people, 
sometimes they believe what you're telling them. You could be telling them all wrong, but they'll take that just because that's what they may only see. Well, that was the same back then. They had a bunch of poor people, and they said, hey, this is the way it's supposed to be. And so they accepted that. But also, we see that John the Baptist, you know, the forerunner for Jesus, he questioned, is this really the Messiah? Uh, we see him being the forerunner in John one twenty nine. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he points out, hey, this is the Lamb of God. But then we see a little bit later uh, when John is in prison, <clears throat> uh, he sends two messengers to Jesus. And he asks, hey, is this really the Messiah? Are you really the Messiah? This is after he comes out and says, that's the guy. He comes back and says, wait a minute, are you really the guy? Is it his situation? We don't know uh, right now. According to what we're looking at, he's just questioning, hey, I'm in prison. Why are you really the guy? Because I was supposed to be preaching before you, and then you were supposed to fix everything. And now I'm sitting in prison. But we see Jesus goes back with the answer and says in Luke 7.22, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. We have the opportunity to sit there and say, oh, look, that's awesome. How come John didn't believe? He's seen it, but now he's you know, in prison. But you know, do we question God when circumstance, circumstances happen? I know I do. I, uh, I question God a lot. Sometimes it's because of my own situation. Sometimes it's maybe I'm looking at the wrong thing. So I'm not much better than the people in Jesus' time. We've seen the miracles. We've heard the preaching week in and week out, but we still question it. Um, we know that John understood the message uh, for the signs that Jesus was performing and the credentials of the Messiah. So John knew all of this, but he still was wondering... Why is, what's going on here? Um, had Jesus let him down? Has Jesus ever let anybody down? Makes you wonder. It, no, he hasn't, but it makes you wonder, why do we question? Why do we think Jesus let John down? He didn't. Why do we feel he lets us down? Because we didn't get our way? Maybe that's usually what it is. I didn't get my way. Uh, but the best answer, assuming John had doubts about Jesus identifying or that he uh, was in some sort of depression while in prison, which, what, why do we feel that Jesus lets us down? We have this depression. We're questioning it. <clears throat> uh, the answer would seem to lie in the circumstances of the nation of Israel also. Jesus came into the world when Rome was ruling uh, the Jewish people. So they, they weren't even their own state yet. Uh, they're being ruled by this corrupt, terrible, I could say rude, Rome. Uh, there were many in Palestine who were proclaiming that the coming of the, the kingdom predicted in the Old Testament would be by the means of military overthrow. So they also thought, hey, he's going to come down and 
destroy Rome. As Blake had stated, you know, they feel that, hey, it's going to be complete overthrow. We're going to take over. We're going to control. Um, but Jesus came on the scene. God's kingdom was at hand, but he said it would belong to the meek, not to the strong. His ministry was one of mercy. He wasn't going to come in and just start destroying people and not of judgment. Uh, John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So we see His message was really about saving people, not about what they thought was going to come in and destroy people. John the Baptist, on the other hand, if we look a little bit into Matthew, he was proclaiming the vengeance of the Messiah would be uh, would bring unbelievers, or I'm sorry, bring on the unbelievers. Matthew three seven through ten. Brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say of yourselves, "We have Abraham as our father." For I say to you that God is able to raise up a children to Abraham from these stones. And now even the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we see John, is he's preaching a whole different message than what Jesus really was coming to do. He's preaching wrath. As they used to say when I was a kid, hellfire and brimstone. Um which isn't a bad message, but it's not the right message as we see uh, what Jesus really was doing. Um, It seems that John's question as one concerned more with the tactics of Jesus in establishing his kingdom rather than John questioning Jesus' identity as the Messiah. John actually had it wrong. I hate to say that, but he kind of, like I said, he came in saying, hey, this is the Messiah, and he's going to judge you people, when he should have been saying, this is the Messiah, and he's going to save you. He's going to forgive you of your sins. He's going to heal you. And John was saying, no, he's going to do this, this, and this. And it kind of shows us that even some preachers get some things wrong at times when they're thinking of what the Messiah is. Um we jump to Lazarus. Lazarus, I can't even talk tonight. And uh, his story. We show that this is, I believe, if I'm correct, the last miracle that Jesus performed um, that we see in the New Testament. And Lazarus is healed, brought up from the dead. We think this is awesome. We think the people would accept this. And he's walking around. I know if I seen a dead guy walking around, I'd be a little nervous. But Lazarus, <clears throat> by him walking around, is when they really, the Pharisees and the leaders decided, hey, it's time. This is done. We not only need to kill Jesus, we need to kill Lazarus. Because if people see this guy was dead, and now he's up walking around. We got a problem here. <clears throat> and so in John eleven fifty three, 
Then from that day, they plotted to put him to death. And like I said, they're not only talking about Jesus, they're talking about Lazarus and, and how this guy is walking around. Jesus healed him. It's time to get rid of him. So as I was stating, they seen the miracles. They were there for all the miracles. They believed all the miracles, but they didn't want to see the miracles. They were, like I said, seeing a guy up on this big high throne and taking control and getting him out of Rome and, and stopping the Roman rule, which made them better because they had the money to become the rulers that they wanted to be. Um, Jesus claimed to be the promised Messiah. They did not like that. He was rejected by his people. Uh, the hearts of the people were hardened to the truth. In addition, there was a corrupt religious leadership who would not have received his claims. Therefore, it was the sin of the people that kept, him, kept them from accepting Jesus as the promised one. And we see, although John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Messiah, he sent two messengers. Once again, he was still questioning those, uh, not once again, but he was questioning those things that Jesus had done in front of him. Jesus told the messengers that he was indeed the Messiah, and they, the people still didn't believe it, and they tried to overthrow what Jesus was doing and wasn't seeing what he was actually trying to do. He was trying to give his life for the sacrifices of sins, which helps us today because he's still doing the miracles and he's still forgiving sins. And I'm so thankful that he can forgive my sins today just like he forgave their sins back then. All we have to do is believe what he's doing and what he's planning to do through our lives and seek his will and not the will of the religious leaders or the rich people in the world today. All right, now's the fun part. We get some group participation. So I want to ask a question. And I am, I look around and I am surrounded by a lot of wisdom in this room. I was always taught that wisdom could be a substitute for a different characterization. But I want to hear from you guys. So, so Dad talked about Lazarus and, and kind of the situation here and how they decided that they wanted to just kill Jesus and Lazarus, which, which in reality would just suppress everything that took place. So I want to hear some ideas. And there's no right or wrong answer. I just want ideas and opinions. Um, why... Do we think that these religious leaders tried on multiple occasions to suppress the truth of Jesus or suppress the truth of what was taking place? What would prompt them to um, try and get rid of or suppress what was happening? They didn't want others to believe and follow after. Okay, so they, they didn't want people to put their belief there in that direction instead and leave from their guidance. Okay, good. Anybody else? Well, same thing, um, what Kevin was saying. Uh, they loved uh, the acclamation of, of man 
Good. Good. So uh, their socioeconomic status or, or the way that they were seen in the eye of the public, their, their respect. Okay. Any other ideas why they would not want the truth of what was taking place to be out and about or shared? I think the Pharisees sometimes get a bad rap because of they really were about preserving Judaism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were really wanting to preserve that Old Testament belief, their, their, their whole belief system sure. was being challenged by this guy. Their culture and everything that they had so, built and been raised on, yeah. So this guy who's claiming to be God that is shaking everything up. Yeah. Yeah, and, and what Paul is saying, uh, and what you were saying, uh, all these attributes, uh, the, the, the seven of them, that um, in conversations, you know, with, with somebody, well, uh, why would, why did Jesus say, my God, my God, uh, you know, why have you forsaken me on the cross if there wasn't, you know, uh, sure. three people and stuff like that? And uh, I, I always say, you know, that, that has nothing to do with the Trinity. That has nothing to do with the Trinity. Sure. Jesus is talking to the, 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 the elite of the elite of Judaism, and he's quoting Psalms 22. Yeah. And if anyone knows Psalms 22, it's going to be the elite of the elite. It's like if you say to me, then uh, then Peter said, I'll be able to say the rest of it. Or yeah. if you say, for God so loved the world, I can t- tell you the rest. Yeah. You know, it, it's like, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, Jesus was throwing yeah. the, the suffering Messiah right in their face. Good. They should be able to say the rest of it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, his garments are, are parted. He, he's uh, afflicted with the, you know what I'm saying? It just, they knew. Yeah. They knew. Good. Yeah. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Good. I, so, the, so while studying this, I asked myself that question through all three weeks because through the first two weeks when, when we begin to break down a lot of these miracles, at one point or another throughout these miracles, it, it, it talked about how um, the plot to kill him began and, and how because of this work, the plot continued. And, and at one point, it, he even got word of it. And so he kind of stopped going out in public there for a while and all that. And so then I, I started questioning, well, why would you want to hide everything that's taking place? Why? I wouldn't, right? So when, when I think about me and I think about when I hear these miracles, I love to talk about them. When I think of my testimony, I like to share that. I, I wouldn't hide that from people. So I begin to ask, well, kind of what would be the point? And, and, and studying this, I found what I accepted as a decent answer to that. And, and the funny point, fact is, it is in a scripture and it incorporates every single thing that we just heard, that we just talked about. So I want to go back to um, starting with Lazarus because I said that there were multiple occasions on which these leaders suppressed 
what was taking place. And there were multiple occasions on when they hid that. So I want to start with Lazarus, right? Because we know in this situation, Scripture tells us that there were actually Pharisees or there were actually these religious leaders there to witness this take place. And, and this wasn't just some small act, right? This wasn't just some cool card trick that you can see walking through any city, it seems like nowadays, or any, it was no small thing. Lazarus had been dead for four days. This wasn't like a 10 minutes later kind of fix the situation or even like Lazarus keeled over and then he showed up and four days had gone by and Jesus shows up and raises him from the dead. Now, you would think that everybody there to witness this take place, their first reaction would probably be just to kind of stand there and question whether they just witnessed that. But once they gathered themselves would be to go share that with everybody. But instead, these religious leaders that were there did not. And, and as the news began to travel of what had taken place, and then here's Lazarus just walking around, a you know, guy that everybody knew had been dead for four years or four days, just walking around and, and word begins to travel. And then people start going to these religious leaders. They're like, hey, are, are you guys hearing what's going on out here? Like this guy's raising people from the dead. And, and now they begin to question and they begin to try and figure out what are we supposed to do? What, what do we do in this case? Because one, we've got our people that are now no longer our people because they're walking with him and following him and listening to him. And then we've got these other people coming to us and questioning us and saying, are you hearing what's taking place? What do we do? And here are these religious leaders that were there that witnessed it take place, that watched it happen and were impacted by what took place. And rather than stepping in and saying, hey, listen, we were there. We saw this. We recognized this. This truly was miraculous. Instead, they just kind of sit back. And then they join in, but they join in on the conversation of, well, how can we get rid of him? And that's where we get John eleven fifty three. From that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus's death. So rather than them taking this opportunity to spread belief, rather than them taking this opportunity to step back and say, maybe there is something more. Maybe there is something that we aren't sure about yet. They rather just say, how can we sweep this under the rug? How can we just kind of get rid of this whole situation so people forget? So that people stop coming to us and stop questioning us, stop asking us what's going on, stop asking us if, if we were wrong about the Messiah and if this is really the guy, so that people will stop leaving our direction and following him, what can we do to just kind of get rid of it? And the ultimate answer that they came up with was to get rid of the problem, just get rid of him. And, even, and, and then after that, they realized, well, we can get rid of him. But there's still one more problem because, yeah, this guy carried out the miracle 
and, and they're all saying that this guy's doing all of these things. And, and so obviously, if we get rid of the root of the cause, that, that will help our issue. So let's get rid of him. But there's one more detail because there's still this guy that was dead for four days. And everybody knew he was dead for four days, who is now walking around and talking with everybody else. So we can get rid of Jesus. But every time somebody sees Lazarus, they're going to immediately remember this and this story, this situation. And, and then the questions are just going to come up again. So in order to get rid of this whole problem, John 12, 10, then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too. So now they've decided that we have this situation that we're being told about. We have this situation that we witnessed. And we feel as if it would be easier for us to commit double homicide and kill and just get rid of two people rather than just step back and maybe look into if there is something more or if there is something different that, that we just don't know of yet. It's just easier for us to plan and kill two people. But Lazarus wasn't the only situation where these leaders tried to suppress the works that Jesus was doing. And if you were in here last week, we talked about another one of those situations, which is the blind man that Jesus uh, spit on the ground, made clay, rubbed it on his eyes. He went and washed in the pool, came back, and he was able to see. This is yet another example of when these leaders try to just get rid of a pro or get rid of a miracle in hopes that the people would forget about it. Because when this man came back to the town and, and the people began, the town people began to see that he was different and see that he was actually able to see, and they begin to ask what took place, what happened. And, and so he tells them the story, and I won't go through all of it because I spent 40 minutes last week doing it. But they get to the point where they're like, hold on. They, they don't recognize how truly powerful what took place was or how special it was. They focus rather on the fact of these guys say that there's a Sabbath and we can't do anything on the Sabbath. And it's a law for a reason and, and we have to follow that. And he did not. So we're going to take you before these leaders, and now you're going to be interrogated and, and tried on why you, did, why you disobeyed the Sabbath. And so he goes before the leaders, and then they ask again, well, what took place? So he goes through the whole story, telling them everything. And here's where it brings a little bit of problem. Because when he gets through telling the story of what happened, it sparks a little bit of division amongst these leaders because you have, we'll just split it half. You have half of them that are saying, well, this guy can't be of God. He disobeyed the Sabbath, so therefore he's a sinner. Sinners can't be of God. He has to be a sinner. So we're just going to label him a sinner. That's the easy way for us to just kind of sweep this under the rug, get rid of it. He's a sinner. But then you have the other half that are using reason and they're like, hold on. We all know this guy. He's been blind. He's clearly not blind. And he's claiming that this Jesus guy did this. A sinner would not be able to do that. So 
Can we label him a sinner? And so then the other group is probably throwing, you know, their pros and cons list as to why he's a sinner, why he's not of God. This side's throwing their reasons. They're, pro- they're just arguing back and forth, debating, trying to bring people to the other side, trying to figure out, well, no, you're wrong. Here's why I'm right, blah, 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 going back and forth. But at the end of the day, there's division. And so now it brings up if they can't even agree on something like this. What happens when the people that are supposed to follow them start coming with questions? They can't come to an agreement on whether he was a sinner or not. So when people start coming and asking deeper questions, they obviously can't debate in front of the people and show that they can't agree or show that they don't know. Because I'm the religious leader. When it comes to religious matters, you're supposed to follow me. But if I don't know what the answer to your question is, why would you follow me? So here we go again, where they decide, maybe we just get rid of this. Maybe we just get rid of him. And and they get to the point, and he has a little bit of fun with it. Because they're arguing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and he sees the opportunity They finally, they're like, okay, hold on. Let's try this story again and see if maybe we missed something. And if you tell us the story again, maybe we'll hear a new detail and we'll all be able to understand and agree where this guy comes from, who he is, what's going on here. Tell it to us again. And he has a little bit of fun. He's like, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to follow him? Are you you showing interest Are you maybe experimenting with the idea that this guy is the Messiah or is the Savior or that you should be his disciple? And they get mad about it. And they're like, whoa, don't don't accuse us of that. We are set. We are Moses's disciples because we know that God spoke to Moses. So, no, we're not trying to be. You know what? Don't even you're questioning us. Just leave. You're not welcome here. You're now labeled a sinner. For all time, and you are not welcome in this temple any longer. And so again, they kick him out, and they just get rid of him. Now, he got lucky. They didn't try and kill him. Lazarus, not so lucky. Jesus, not so lucky. But this guy, again, they suppress what was truly happening, what was truly taking place, and they just get rid of him. So again, why would these leaders suppress the truth behind Jesus? Power? Money, respect, status in the public? John gives us our answer. And when you look at John chapter 11, starting in verse 47, we kind of go into the truth behind why they were suppressing everything that was taking place. Because it says the, the leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together. So they decided, let's bring all of these religious leaders and let's all figure this out. And they asked, what what are we going to do in this situation? What, What possibly can we do? And here's the cool part, because the next sentence says, this man certainly performs many miraculous signs. So finally they admit that Jesus is carrying out or doing 
the miraculous. They finally admit, okay, this guy is doing this. When the blind man came, they tried to dispel it. He couldn't have done it. He's a sinner. It couldn't have been. He's not from God. He couldn't have done that. But now they're finally saying, okay, we know that he's doing this. But what do we do? And here in verse 48, I think, is where we get the answer to that question. Because in verse 48, they answer themselves and they say, if we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. So if we allow him to continue to do these works, and if we allow the truth behind what he's doing to get out to the people, they will just continue to leave us. And if they continue to leave at the rate they're going now, soon we're not going to have anybody. And, and now what, where does our respect come from? Where does our status come from? If nobody's following us or listening to us, where's our power? And then... They continue on and they say, after that takes place, then the Roman army will come in and destroy both our temple and our nation. So they suppressed the truth behind Jesus and the truth behind the Messiah out of fear. Out of fear of losing their power. Out of fear of losing their respect and their status. And also, they tried to kind of mask it up and pretend like they cared for them. And I think they, I say pretend, but I think they really did truly care. And they were trying to withhold what they knew. They were just so stubborn and hard-headed that they weren't willing to open up to any outside ideas. Can I interrupt? Yeah. Just, if, just to bring a little more context to what you're talking about, you have two, two totally different religious segments there, mm -hmm. the chief priests and the Pharisees, yeah. who had two different motivations. The chief priests got along with Rome. Rome let them do their thing. Yeah. And as long as they did their thing and didn't cause any disruption, Rome kind of let, let the Jews be Jews. Sure. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were the uh, old school, hold on to the law, let's keep everything intact. So you have two different, they, they hated Rome, yeah. where the chief priests, they, they were fired from Rome. Yeah. So now you have these two that come together. One, this guy's going to take all of these people <laughs> following our religion, and the other group said, this guy's going to cause a problem when all the people turn, and Rome's going to come down and destroy everything we got. So the two of them came together, where they happened to be together, any time before this moment, so both of those together. Which clarifies the expectation set earlier where he would unite all people, and we see a situation where these people weren't united, and now they're being, and they don't even realize what's taking place with and, them. And the high priests were, were the Sadducees. Yeah. So, so we have this under this agreement where they're saying. This isn't good. We can't let this continue because it would just be bad for all of us. And here's where it gets interesting because then the high priest or we would call them the chair of the committee steps in in verse 49 and, and he says to them, you all know nothing. You don't even consider 
It is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. And the reason I say that this is where it gets interesting is because his statement is very ironic. Because in his mind, it's very ironic. What What he's saying in his mind is, it makes complete sense to get rid of one person who is causing civil unrest across their nation, across their kingdom. Let's just get rid of him instead of allowing our entire nation to be destroyed. That makes complete sense. And so in his mind, that's what he's saying. But what, where it gets ironic and interesting and what he didn't realize he was doing was he's literally prophesying. He's unknowingly prophesying that Jesus, alone, by killing Jesus, allows him alone to save this entire kingdom, all of these people, which is his purpose or his mission was to save all of the people. And so this, this chair, this, this high priest is saying, well, let's just get rid, it makes sense, let's just get rid of him, and doesn't even realize that he's really just solidifying the prophecy that was once laid before. Therefore, he's, he's unknowingly admitting that Jesus is, in fact, the anointed one who was sent to save the people, which we talked about earlier, anointed one meaning Messiah. And so what do they do? They, they just continue to deny him as Messiah. They continue to deny the fact that he could be the one sent for them. And they they continue to plot and plan, and and we know that they carry out that plan, and they do kill him, which they don't realize, but really does just lead to probably the most miraculous work that he does, which we recognize as his death, burial, and his resurrection with the sole purpose of covering all of us with his blood and redeeming all of us from sin. And so here we have these leaders who are missing the fact that he is sent here to, with that mission or with that purpose to save from the east to the west, from the north to the south, bring everybody. He's here to save him. Him dying alone saves all of us. And they missed that point, but yet at the same time helped that come to fruition. And so here we see where we have expectation that's set out throughout Old Testament where they have an image of who Messiah should be. And then we go through New Testament where we're seeing the Messiah, the Savior at work, and yet these leaders are missing that point. And it leads to the point of, or leads to the event of where they finally get, so they think, get rid of him. When in reality, they just help him care or help him complete his mission and his purpose here on earth.